is Planet in Upheaval. And uh, because this is a Bible study, I believe that when we study the Bible, uh, we really need to ask God to help us understand it. It's a spiritual book, and God's Spirit needs to help us as we open it. So I'd like to pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for all the people who have come to study with me. Please forgive my sins and make me fit to speak. And may there be a smile on your face when I'm done because I've said what you want me to say. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a story in the Bible where Jesus and his disciples are walking past the temple. And if you've heard anything about the, the temple in Jerusalem back in that time, it was Herod's temple, and he did some really um, significant work to make it one of the wonders of the world. It was beautiful and um, amazing marble and, uh, and special artwork and gold leaf um, all over the place, and, and it, it swelled the pride of the disciples. And so as they're going by, they, they point to the temple and say, look, Jesus, surely this is proof that God is with us. And Jesus he, he responds in Matthew chapter 24. And if you've got your Bibles, Matthew 24 is the place we're going to be sitting tonight. Um, so hold your finger there. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1. And this is what he says. Verse 2, sorry. Do you not see all these things? Do you not see this temple, etc.? Do you not all see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And Jesus was absolutely right. Forty years later, in AD 70, a group known as the Zealots rebelled against the Roman Empire. And uh, they, they, they caused enough trouble that Rome sent an army. It was a violent uprising, and so Rome sends an army, and the result of that was the Zealots end up being overcome. They, they um, are chased into the temple. They go in the temple to hide. And at one point, the Roman soldiers take a, um, some kind of a burning torch, and they put it through one of the doors to kind of see what's going on or something. But the place is made with all kinds of really, really old cedar, and it just lights up with fire. Now, this is not something that, um, that Titus was interested in, and he wanted to save this, the, the beautiful landmark, but it was just impossible. By the time it had started burning, there was no hope for it, and it, and it melted. There was tons of gold, literally tons of gold in this building, and it melted all this gold in between the rocks and the foundations and everything. And so after the, the fire was out and the war was over, um, the, the Roman soldiers, and, and got to keep in mind that back in the day, they were paid somewhat by the loot that they could take with them. So the Roman soldiers see this gold, and this is their, their pay, and so they go to find this gold anywhere they can. Any crack that the gold has gone into, they tear apart and they move the, the boulders and they, they take the gold out. And, and what happened was not one stone was left on top of the other. Now today in the city of Rome, there's a commemorative arch um, at the edge of the Roman Forum known as the Arch of Titus. And if you get real close, you can see that there's a, uh, a soldier carrying away the seven-branch candlestick from the temple. Is that better? <laughs> Good. Don't want to be in your way. So th there's this moment, this moment in history is commemorated um, right there on this arch that you can see still to this day. What Jesus said happened exactly as he said it would. Not one stone le was left on top of the other. And when, when you hear this from the perspective of the, the disciples at the time Jesus made this prophecy, you've got to ex 
kind of anticipate what they're thinking. They think that Jerusalem is going to last until the end of time. And if the, the temple is destroyed, surely that must be the end of time. And so the disciples, um, they ask Jesus, how in the world can this be if the temple falls to the end of the world? When is this going to happen? And, and you can read about it in verse 3. He, now he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Do you see how they've tied together the temple falling and the second coming? Well, Jesus then responds, mostly focused on the second coming. And uh, here in verse 4, he says to them, take heed that no one deceives you. That's a really important word, deceives. And we'll find that it comes back over and over again in prophecy. God is interested in us understanding what's going on. That's why the Bible has this book called Revelation. He's revealing what will happen before it happens so that we aren't deceived. That's the whole point here about what he's about to tell us. We don't want you to be deceived. And the very next verse helps us understand why Jesus thinks this deception issue is such a big deal. He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And then in verse six, um, he says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. Lord, when are you going to return? How long will it be till you return? What are the signs that will pre precipitate this uh, coming, the end of things? And Jesus' response is, you know it's getting close when? And then he describes these things. Watch for these signs, false Christs, wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes. Watch out, it's almost time. Now, if you're a thinking person, maybe a tad bit towards skeptical, you probably will be thinking, we've always had wars. There's always been weird diseases. Earthquakes have been around for a long, long time. Uh, how can these be signs of the second coming? And, and the skeptic has a good reason to ask that question, but the problem is they haven't read the next verse because the next verse gives the answer. And it says this, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. That word sorrows is an important word. And uh, just to get an idea of what Jesus means by that, I have to ask a question. How many of you have had a baby before? Anybody had a baby? Okay, how about men, if, if, if you're married to somebody, have you, have you uh, seen a baby be born or been part of that experience? Yeah. It's quite an experience. I, I want to tell you a little bit about my experience, my first experience with my daughter, Adeline. Um, I've got to be quiet and not talk too loud because she might be embarrassed if I tell you this story, but here's what happened. Adeline took a little while to come. She was not interested in coming out. It was five in the morning, and my wife's water broke, woke us up, and uh, apparently that's not, that's not usually what happens, unlike what the movies describe. Um, usually the water breaks a little farther along in the process. She was pretty early on in, in labor, and so we called with some anxiety and urgency, the baby's coming, and the midwife, who we, we were going to have a home birth, and, and the midwife who was going to come didn't seem to be at all hurried. 
In fact, she said, go back to sleep, like that was going to happen, right? Go back to sleep. And she didn't come for another few hours. It was like eight or nine in the morning when she finally showed up with her assistant and a, and a birthing tub that they were going to put warm water in, and apparently that was supposed to help. It eventually did not help. It made things worse, but whatever. So um, she sets this thing up, and um, I'm, I'm standing there at the counter um, where Joelle is kind of leaning up against, and I'm massaging her back as, as the midwife is baking a cake. Just totally not hurried at all. She knew that this wasn't happening right away. Um, and, and slowly, the contractions grew more intense and more frequent. And, uh, and one time, she got into the, the birthing tub, and it, that was supposed to kind of speed things up, but it slowed things down. So the midwife said, let's go take a shower. And so um, Joelle was in the shower. It was cold. It had to be, like, as cold as it can get. And, uh, and here in the north, the water's not very warm at all. So I'm back there still massaging her back, freezing, and she's like, it can't get cold enough for her. So um, yeah, that, that was an interesting experience. And then it, it just kept going on until like two or three in the morning when Adeline finally decided that it was time to come out. Not every baby takes as long as Adeline did. Apparently, she had her arm over her head, and, and she finally decided to put her arm down, and then the, everything was good after that. Um, but not every baby comes slowly like that. Some babies take longer, but others come quite quickly. But every baby has the same process. You don't get to that point when, uh, you know, you're just doing your thing, and suddenly, pop, out comes a baby, right? It, it doesn't happen that way. Every single time, there's a buildup. It starts with contractions that are farther apart and not as intense, and then it builds and builds and builds until suddenly you know that it, this is the time. And, and the word that Jesus used here, sorrows, is uh, an important word. It means birth pains. The, the Greek word is odin, and, and it literally means birth pains. So when Jesus is saying that these are the beginning of birth pains, he's pointing us to that process, to that, that uh, thing that we can remember from those experiences we've had with birth, that things are going to be more intense and get more close together as the time approaches. And so the question is, what time is it? How strong are the birth pains right now? How quickly are the contractions coming? Now, I need, we need to be careful here. Exercise a, a, a bit of caution as we talk about timing and the end. There's been a lot of people throughout history that have tried to put a date on something, and we're not going to do that. We are not going to say, Jesus is coming in this year or this month or this day. And, and the reason is because Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 36, just a few verses after this, no man knows the day or the hour. And some people are like, well, okay, so you might not know the day or the hour, but you could figure out the year or maybe the season. But Jesus warns us against that in the, the very beginning of Acts. He tells the disciples right before he rises to heaven, he says, you don't even know the, the seasons. So we, we can't not just put a day on it or an hour on it, but we can't even put the season on it when Jesus will come. So let's not try to do that. What we can do, though, is see the trajectory and see kind of the, the, the trend. Where are we in the process of history? Um, sounds like they're having a lot of fun in there, doesn't it? 
<laughs> if anybody wants to go to the buried treasure, <laughs> that, that apparently is a really fun experience. So nobody knows exactly when Jesus is coming. I want to point that out before we get into this, but, but we can get a sense for when it's getting close. In verse 32, Jesus compares the signs to a fig tree. In the springtime, the fig tree starts to get leaves on it, and when you, the leaves come out, you know it's almost time for summer. The signs, the fig tree's leaves, point to the, the next season, and that's what we're looking at in the Bible prophecy. We're looking at signs that point to that, that time of history when Jesus will come, and there's three different signs that Jesus points to. Religious signs, political signs, and natural signs, signs in the natural world. We're going to start with our exploration in the religious signs. Look back at verse 5 in chapter 24. Jesus says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Again, I want to point to that deception, deceive. This is an intentional thing Jesus says. He wants us to recognize that deception is going to be a big deal, and we need to pay attention. Uh, some people, um, they, they want to just be like, hey, everything's cool, you know, praise the Lord, um, I, I'm saved by grace, and uh, that's all I need, and that's okay, I'm not, I'm not downing any of those things. Praise the Lord, I'm saved by grace too, um, but God, in, He gives us a revelation so that we can have our eyes open and not be deceived. And if He says in verse... Um, the next verse, false Christ, sorry, verse 24, false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. He's pointing out that we can't even trust our senses. We're going to see miracles. We're going to see amazing wonders that people are doing. And Jesus says, if you don't know to look, if you don't know what the, the signs are here, you might be deceived and think they are the Christ and, and even be Um, turned away from your salvation here. Be careful, in the last days there's going to be false Christs. I want to just look back, not at all of history, there's always been one or two guys that are saying, I'm Jesus, I'm the second coming of Christ, but in the last few decades we've had a lot of them. So I I want to point out a few highlights, and uh, some of these you'll know. 1950s, a guy named Sun Myung Moon, I might have pronounced that right. I might have not. I'm sorry if I did, um, didn't. But he started the Unification Church, and he was doing all kinds of interesting things. Like he had these mass weddings, which, uh, you know, it's kind of cool. A bunch of young people getting married. That was, that was nice. Except when you look at what he's actually teaching, he claimed to be the incarnation of God. He said, he, that is God, is living in me. I am the incarnation of himself. Well, then you move forward to 1969, and you've got a guy named Charlie Manson. Now, Charles Manson was called by some the Savage Messiah. He managed to get a following of people, convinced them to go to a place in Northridge, California, to murder an actress named Sharon Tate. And then they went on to three other places and murdered eight other people as well. And uh, some people, this, this murder was so grisly, it galvanized the country. Uh, and, and some people would point to Charlie and say, Charles Manson is evil personified. Um, there's a lot of people who followed Charlie, though. At one point, not very many years ago, a young 26-year-old wanted to marry him. And uh, the house that this murder took place in is still the object of interest for many people. They go and, and they look at this place. 
even though the house has been bulldozed and rebuilt and bulldozed and rebuilt again, uh, they still see this as an interesting place. They want to see what's going on. What many people don't know is that Charlie Manson, he thought of himself as the Messiah. He believed that this act of violence would make people think that uh, would would make people think that the black people had done this, and it would start a race war, and he'd rise up and and save the world, um, and become the Messiah. He's just one false Messiah. Um, then in 1970s, there was Jim Jones and the People Temple. How many of you remember Jim Jones? I was not around in 1970s, but I was born in 1980, and I remember all kinds of interesting stories about Jim Jones from my parents at that time. They started in San Francisco, moved down to Jonestown, Guyana, um, and at one point the, the government wanted to know what's going on, and so they went down to Guyana, and uh, Jim heard that they were coming, and so he talked everybody into drinking this Kool-Aid mixed with cyanide, and now we say about people who have uh, gone down a rabbit trail that is just is not rational, that they've drunk the Kool-Aid because of Jim Jones' experience. One brave lady, just one out of hundreds, stood up and said, this doesn't seem like something Jesus would do. But nobody listened. Hundreds died. And they didn't need to. They didn't need to. If they had only listened to what Jesus said, watch out, be careful that you're not deceived, there will be many false Christs. Move forward to 1990s, and a young preacher named Vernon Howell changed his name to David Koresh. David from the King David, and Koresh is uh, one um, translation or another way of saying Cyrus. And Cyrus was a Persian king who delivered the Israelites from the captivity in Babylon. And so he saw himself as, uh, as Christ. He called himself the second coming of Christ a sinful Christ. He said, first, Jesus came and he had to be perfect and live a, a sinless life. But I've come um, to, to live a sinful life and, and experience the dregs of sin for all mankind. And if you remember what happened there in Waco, Texas, uh, many people died, burned to death because of a false Messiah. In 1997, uh, police in San Diego discovered the bodies of 39 people who had been listening to a guy named Marshall Applewhite, and uh, these, these people, they, uh, they were told that there was on the backside of the Hales-Bopp comet a spaceship, and if they just um, killed themselves, that their souls would be transported to that spaceship and they would, um, they would be able to go to heaven. So they had one last meal, and then they all came back, and uh, they, they gave themselves phenobarbital, and wrapped their heads with plastic just to make sure it would work, and 39 people died. And the list goes on. There's Benjamin Cream, the Scottish writer who told the world that uh, the Maitra, a future incarnation of Buddha, was about to come, and that uh, that would be the second coming. And then you've got the Order of the Solar Temple, and a bunch of followers who have killed and committed mass suicide in the name of Christ. And then in 1999, there were so many people traveling to Jerusalem, calling themselves Jesus or saying that they were John the Baptist or Elijah reincarnated, that they've named a new psychiatric disorder after it called Jerusalem Syndrome. There's always been one or two, a few weird people calling themselves the Messiah. But today we have hundreds, 
hundreds of people saying they're false messiahs. And I, I think from what Jesus said, it's probably only going to get worse. People are getting hurt and being led astray because they haven't paid attention to what Jesus warned us about in Matthew 24. False Christs, false messiahs, religion gone bad. And you can find in 2 Timothy 3 that um, the Bible predicts religion gone bad. In the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. A form of godliness, but denying its power. Now, uh, have you seen that kind of a religious experience? The Barna Group just a few years ago did a study in North America, and they asked Christians, people who said, I'm a Christian. They asked Christians a few questions, and they made a statement, and they said, do you agree with this, or do you disagree with this? The first question was, God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who rules the world today. And 78% of Christians said, yes, we believe that, which sounds good until you realize they're Christians. It should have been 100%. That means that 22% of Christians don't believe that God is the creator, or they don't believe that He rules the world today. And then you've got the second question, where they said, Satan is not a living being. He's just a symbol for evil. And 59%, two-thirds almost, of Christians said, yeah, we don't believe the devil's real. And then you've got question number three. They they say, and, and this one breaks my heart, they say that Jesus sinned while He was on earth. Now, how many said that? 39% of Christians believe that Jesus sinned. Now, the the Bible says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus knew no sin. The Bible is very clear. He's the spotless Lamb of God. He didn't have any sin, and if He did, He couldn't be our Savior. And yet, almost 40% of Christians believe that Jesus had sinned having a form of godliness, but denying its power. The fourth question, the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's power or presence, but is not a living entity. 58% of Christians agreed with that statement. 58% are no longer clear on the triune nature of God, a a position that Christians have held uh, resolutely for 2,000 years since the time of Christ. There has been no question, and yet 58% do not agree with it. The world has changed. Paul predicted a day when people would profess godliness but deny its power. You be the judge. If this isn't it, then what is? That's my question. Well, let's keep moving on, though. Those were signs in the religious world. There's also signs in the political world. And uh, in here we have uh, verse 6. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We've always had war. It's a tragic reality of our human condition. Um, But did you realize that we've lost more than 200 million people in warfare in the 20th century alone? Uh, Some estimate that that is as many people who have died in war as of all the time in history before. 200 million people dead in war. And of course, we've always had war, but this past century has been something that's quite unusual. It used to be that um, you would line up in rows 
and you'd have swords and spears and stuff, and you'd chase after each other, and you had to look people in the eye. Even in uh, the early 19th century, or the, the, until the late 19th century, I should say, we would line up in rows and point guns at each other. You still had to look them in the eye to kill them, but that's not the case anymore. Once you get to the 20th century, you have trench warfare where terrible gases are killing people. And then you've got all kinds of other interesting things that are happening in World War II with planes and tanks and stuff. And by the time you get to the, uh, to the 21st century, you've got um, atomic bombs, you've got planes flying into buildings. Warfare has become not a personal thing anymore, and it's become much, much more deadly. When I last checked, there were more than 40 armed conflicts being fought on planet Earth. Not one, not two, but more than 40 armed conflicts. And if you look it up on Wikipedia, there's a page that keeps track of ongoing wars. There's actually something more like 60, but I, I, the last 20, there's not very many people involved. So we'll just save more than 40. And, and when you look at the top three in just 2021 alone, by now, that, how many months have gone by? Just four months. In just 2021, some average of, or some estimate of between 30 and 60,000 people have died in just the top three wars that are going on in the world right now. 30 to 60,000. And those same three wars that were going on last year um, killed 45,000 people. Right now, every one of the U- United Nations 193 member states are involved in some kind of a territorial trade or international dispute of some kind. Every single nation in the UN. And tonight there are eight countries that declare themselves to have nuclear weapons and five more that are either trying to get them or we think already have them and they're kind of secreting them. We have enough nuclear weapons to kill the entire population of the world 50 times over. And it would only take about 30 minutes to make that happen. And what about the tensions in the Middle East? Uh, Iran is enriching uranium and has plans to retaliate against Israel. ISIS wants a caliphate. Russia is pushing back into the countries that she's lost in 1989 when the wall fell. All kinds of things are going on. Dictators are holding power in uh, Latin American countries. North Korea is itching for that war that they think hasn't ever stopped. Um, how, How much would it take to trigger World War III? How hard would it really be to get to a world war again? We've always said, generation after generation, our generation's going to be the one to bring peace. But our generation is the worst there has been. How much would it take to bring on the next worldwide financial meltdown? You might not think that's going to happen, but uh, look what, um, what is said here in James Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. According to this, the market squeeze that we're experiencing now, the the recession that happened in 2008, the depression in 1930s, they're just a warm-up to what the the experience of financial uh, pressure is going to be in the not-too-distant future. But that's not all. Um, Jesus also talks about signs in the natural world, and so let's explore those in verse 7. 
There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. Three things Jesus tells us about. Famines, pestilences, and earthquakes. Let's just start with famines. Right now, there are millions of people that are facing starvation in our world. Food shortages in sub-Saharan Africa are severe and have been for um, most of my life. They're pretty intense. In one region alone, there's more than 28 million people who don't have enough food. That's uh, about the size of Texas. Even here in the United States, one in eight people um, are considered... Um, they, they, they say that they're going hungry, maybe have one meal or less a day. There's, in other countries, Somalia, there's places where three million people are living on food aid. And then there's more than a million people living in squalor and tent cities. And 26 million people around the world have been displaced and, make, and that makes food, uh, coming by food, very difficult. They're in, in some kind of a refugee camp or whatnot. There are more than a billion people on this planet that don't have the essential nutrition. You might have uh, heard stories about Haiti where they're, they're literally taking mud, putting it into little mud pies and eating the mud because it fills their bellies, but it provides zero nutrition. 80% of the children who are born tonight will be born into families who can't afford to feed them. Every six seconds, a child dies of hunger in our world today. And this is important because when you read Matthew 25, just the next chapter in Matthew, Jesus points to this moment, the hunger issue, and he says to his children, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. And they ask, when were you hungry and we fed you? How how does that work? And Jesus' response was, when you saw those starving people, you fed them. Are we solving the hunger problem in our world today? I think this is one of those, those uh, issues that we should pay attention to. And uh, he talks about pestilence as well. Pestilence, it just weird diseases, strange diseases. And uh, think about the last few years. We, we've uh, conquered polio mostly, smallpox um, pretty much everywhere, but we're, we're kind of losing the war on disease. In the last two decades, Streptococcus A moved from strep throat to a flesh-eating disease. Um, Meningococcal diseases are still a problem. Their highest rates in in young children and teenagers. Uh, The plague is alive in rodents in in the west of the United States, and it's still transferring from rodents to people, causing, um, causing the plague every once in a while. Every year, a few people get it. And then you've got Ebola. That's a scary one. And uh, lots of people have uh, been killed by Ebola in Sierra Leone and Liberia. But if you've noticed the news, it's also been here a few times in the United States. Tuberculosis is a thing. And it's getting harder to treat. Um, and not long ago, um, a new respiratory disease touched down in North America, SARS, and that killed some people. Um, we've had the West Nile virus, uh, mad cow disease, salmonella in spinach. That's killed people. Uh, we've had swine flu, MSRA, MSRA in hospitals um, has killed many people. And, uh, of course, the world right now is dealing with one of the largest viral outbreaks that we've had since the dark ages of medicine 100 years ago, SARS-CoV-2. To date, 3.2 million people have died from COVID-19, and they're coming out with new variants even. Yesterday, 
India broke world records with over 400,000 people um, that were diagnosed with that disease in one day. And even though in North America, case counts are going down and death rates are going down and we're seeing things open up again, we're able to meet here without masks, that's really nice. Um, uh, no problem for anybody who is wearing a mask. Glad that you're taking care of yourself. But the, um, the, the reality in North America isn't the reality in the world. We've had three waves, and right now the world is experiencing the fourth, and it is setting records over any of the previous three world waves. Hospital deaths due to infection from drug-resistant bacteria have increased sevenfold in the last 15 years. Um, though some of them are stabilizing in infection, there are at least 18 drug-resistant diseases that, that hospitals are battling and trying to figure out. So, is there pestilence? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there is. And, and we haven't even begun to talk about the strange weather and droughts and floods and fires and weird crop diseases and all kinds of other things. We're losing bees. All kinds of interesting things are happening nowadays. And it's just exactly like Jesus predicted. And then you have earthquakes. Uh, I'd like to, to just think about earthquakes for a little bit. Have we always had earthquakes? I mean, at least as long as we can track in history, yeah, we've always had earthquakes. Um, and they can be kind of a contentious subject because different people read the data different ways. Um, but a few years ago, a guy decided that he was going to look in the history record and see what is recorded in history as far as earthquakes go. And, and he wasn't looking for earthquake in the history records. He was looking for the kinds of things earthquakes do. And big earthquakes, like a 7.0 earthquake, they're going to topple buildings and they're going to kill people, right? So he's looking for the kinds of things, big waves, buildings falling, lots of people dying because of those types of natural disasters. And he found some interesting things. Back um, a while ago, in uh, the first 300 years since Christ, he found there was about one big earthquake. In the next 200 years, there were two. So that's a small uptick, but about the same. For the next 300 years, there was one, uh, just one earthquake in 300 years that we, would, we can record that had that significant damage. And then for the next, uh, um, from 800, oops, I skipped ahead, from 800 um, to 1,000, that 200-year period, there was three. From 1,000 to 1,100, there was two. From 1,100 to 1,200, there was two. So about one or two per century is kind of where it, it was been settling, fairly steady. And then you come to the, the 1,200s, there was one. The 1,300s, one. The 1,400s, one. The 1,500s, two. And then something interesting happens in the 1,600s. Suddenly, there's seven earthquakes. And uh, that you know, you might say, well, we're, we're starting to, to count it. You know, we invented the seismograph and stuff, but there was no seismograph in the, the 1600s. These are just things that you can check in the newspaper to find. So what's happening? What's changing? And then if you keep going, the 1700s, you double almost the, the 1600s to 13. The 1800s double again to 26. And then you've got the 20th century, 130 in the 1900s. And then you come to the 21st century. In the 21st century, earthquakes just seem like they happen all the time. And we're talking about 7.0, 8.0, 9.0 earthquakes. 
In 2004, we had what may have been the biggest earthquake in recorded history, 9.3 magnitude. Um, it was recorded on every device in the entire planet, the first earthquake that that had ever happened with. It was also the longest earthquake. It lasted for 10 minutes. And when it was done shaking, um, it left a huge gash at the bottom of the sea, 800-mile-long gash at the bottom of the sea. And it sent a, a tsunami that pummeled Indonesia and killed over a quarter of a million people. 250,000 people died because of the tsunami. There's always been hundreds of tsunamis since the 1900s, but in 2004, that one tsunami caused more damage and killed more people than all the other tsunamis combined. And then you have the earthquake in Haiti, that was a scary one. Uh, Japan and Fukushima, uh, that was uh, a problem, compromised that nuclear plant. Uh, we got some fallout came, coming to the West Coast even. And I don't know if you noticed in the news, but recently uh, Japan was saying, hey, we've treated that water and we're going to dump it back into the ocean. United States was like, cool. And China was like, okay, uh, nuclear waste. Um, tell you what, if that stuff is safe, could you please drink a little bit? Yeah. So let me ask you, what time is it? How big are the contractions? I, I want to do something just for the fun of it. Let's go back a few years, just to 20 years, and let's just look at the highlights of the big magazines like Time Magazine and stuff like that. Just, just look at the cover articles and let's just see what's been going on in just the last two decades. I'm guessing you remember the moment when the plane hit um, the World Trade Center. If you were um, old enough at the time, you probably remember where you were. I happened to be at uh, a college in Tennessee standing in the student center um, when um, a bunch of people were crowding around the TV, and I went up there and I saw smoke coming out of the World Trade Center, had no idea what was going on, and then the second, um, the second plane hit, and it was, it was chaos. And, and there was something about that moment that made, I think, the world kind of shift a little bit. Everybody kind of knew something's a little different than it was before. And then we learned that we were going to war with, Af uh, with Afghanistan to find bin Laden, and that war cost a billion dollars a month. And then Enron collapsed. I mean, a lot has happened in the financial market since 2008, so we might have forgotten about Enron, but Enron was one of those uh, moments in the financial market where we all said, something's different. This is weird. Um, and Time magazine asked, how sticky will it get? And nobody really had any idea. And that's when we learned that North Korea had a nuclear program and they were launching missiles across the ocean. Thankfully, they kind of didn't work that well, um, but they keep working on it and trying to get better at it. And uh, uh, right now, North Korea has one of the biggest and most successful hacking armies that the world knows. And they're stealing, stealing Bitcoin and, and, um, and, and uh, doing these uh, ransom attacks um, on companies and making millions as a result. But then we went to war with Iraq, and uh, that was a, a billion dollars a week, that war we were spending. And even though Saddam Hussein is dead and uh, we ended that war in 2011, technically, we're still kind of involved because of ISIS and all this stuff. And then there was a SARS epidemic that touched down in North America, in Toronto, Canada. And it was this strange new respiratory disease that nobody knew anything about and were afraid of. And then back in the American Northwest, the power grid suddenly went dark. And everybody said, whoa, this, the, the way that we do life 
is under attack, we thought we were in a better situation, but suddenly we realize that our way of life could be switched off pretty quickly. And we've seen um, similar experiences in other states since then. And then there's a tsunami that hit southern Asia, killed a quarter of a million people. In 2005, there were so many hurricanes. We, give a, uh, we, we changed the name based on the letters of the alphabet. There are 27 earthquake, uh, uh, hurricanes, and so we got through all the letters and had to start over again. In, uh, and of course, that's when the big one hit New Orleans and submerged a big part of the city. People had to evacuate from their homes. They lived in the, um, the Superdome for a little while. And then we found out that uh, Iran wanted nukes and that they wanted to wipe Israel off the map. And while we were trying to digest that news, the world economy collapsed overnight and people were losing their homes left and right and center. I personally bought a home in 2007 in California. And, and in 2011, when I got called up to the Northwest, I sold that home and lost $170,000 on it which is a big deal. It was my first home, and I didn't have that money. So <laughs> that was a lot of fun. And a lot of people were experiencing that same crisis at the same time. Big, huge deal. But that was nothing compared to what happened in Haiti in the 2010 earthquake. 150,000 people died, and so much tragedy even after that. And uh, in that same year, the Deepwater Horizon um, sprung a leak, and five million barrels of oil went into the Gulf of Mexico. And that thing, it kept leaking from April to September. And three years later, there were still those tar balls that were rolling up onto the beach. And in December of 2010, people in the Middle East started rising up in what we called the Arab Spring, toppling their governments. Tunisia, twice in, in Egypt, Libya, Yemen. And we've seen uprisings in Bahrain, in Syria. And uh, as a result of much of that, millions of people have gone into um, have been displaced from their homes. We've seen protests in Algeria, in Iraq, in Jordan, in Kuwait, in Morocco, in Sudan. And then in 2011, we had that big Japanese earthquake, 9.0 magnitude earthquake, the fifth most powerful earthquake in history and the most powerful in Japanese history. 12-foot seawalls were powerless as the, the ocean just poured right over them. Um, a wave pummeled some 40% of the Japanese coastline. It created 25 million tons of debris, $122 billion in damage, and almost 16,000 people died. And of course, we don't have a clue what the long-term results of the radiation are going to be. And then in 2011, the Syrian civil war began. The government started using chemical weapons against its people. Two years, 120,000 people had been killed, and millions had fled for their lives. In October 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit the East Coast, causing $65 billion in damage, and there's still parts of New York City that haven't been rebuilt from that period. In 2013, we confirmed that tuberculosis is getting harder to treat, it's coming, getting out of hand, and uh, is spreading across the, the world again. And then we found out for some reason that honeybees are dying off. And then in 2013, a typhoon Yolanda nails the Philippines, 6,200 dead. And then in 2014, Ebola out, um, comes and, and kills thousands and touches down here in the United States. And then we have the Zika virus, uh, that mosquito-borne virus that uh, causes some heartbreaking, uh, severe birth deformities. 
members of ISIS deliberately tried to provoke a war. Um, and then you have, in 2017, we have this new low for mass shootings in Las Vegas. 58 um, concertgoers died. Around the same time, the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, has a shooter. And Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, also has a shooter. And just in the month of April, in the United States, we've seen 41 mass shootings. This year, 2021. The last few years have been unprecedented for natural disasters, um, and we've seen all kinds of things happening. Houston, Hurricane Harvey, Puerto Rico, Florida, Hurricanes Irma and, and uh, Maria. Uh, we've got wildfires that seem to be worsening every, every year. In fact, uh, just in Washington this year, we've had some 250 wildfires that they've had to respond to, and it's not even the summer season, the dry season yet. It's some like, something like three or four times as much as they normally face by this time in the year. And of course, we've got the novel coronavirus outbreak, uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, and, uh, and you know, we've talked about that. But again, let me ask you, what time is it? How big are the contractions? How quickly are they coming? All these things, said Jesus, are the beginning of sorrows. But there's one more sign that Jesus presents in Matthew 24, and it's in verse 14, and I think it's one of the coolest signs. He says it like this in verse 14, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. You know that Jesus said it, but at the time he said it, how in the world could that be possible? They didn't have email. Um, they, didn't, they didn't have those skills or tools that we have today. They didn't have satellite television. Um, and, and yet, um, they, they took the gospel as far as they could take it at the time. But today, things are amazing. In the year 1800, the Bible was available in fewer than 70 languages. A century later, a hundred million copies of the Bible have been printed, and it's available in over 2,200 languages. And right now, in, in um, Africa, Christianity is growing 65% faster than the population, which is an amazing thing for me to think about. In South Africa, Christianity is growing four times than the, the growth rate of the population. And hundreds of thousands of people every year in India are becoming Christians. Um, and then you have, you have China. There are so many people that, like a hundred million people in China have said they want to be Christians. And in China right now, you can't, there, there's an official church, the, the three self church you can go to. Uh, but if you want to be a Bible-believing Christian, you're probably going to have to meet in somebody's home. And if you do, that home might get bulldozed because you do. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty restrictive in China right now. And yet, a hundred million people have said yes to Jesus in China. No government can control and re restrict the gospel message. When people start hearing about the love of Jesus, then it can go anywhere and everywhere. You might be asking, why? Why does Jesus predict, and, and why do we experience such devastation in our world? Is God causing these things to happen? Why does He let this world fall apart? I'd like to suggest, no, God is not causing these things to happen. What we're experiencing is a planet whose population has 
untethered themselves from the Creator God, and we're experiencing the results of our own problems. What we're seeing around the world is the consequence of those things. And, and I think that that is why God has promised us a new world. He's promised us something different. And He says His kingdom is a kingdom that won't ever fall apart. It won't deteriorate like the one we're experiencing today. Uh, and I, I know that this is painful. These birth pains hurt us. And it's not just the things that we see around the world. You're experiencing it in your life too. You've seen loss. Maybe you've faced financial challenges. Maybe you've experienced the loss of a loved one or the break of a relationship that was significant to you. Um, all of us have in some way experienced the stressors and challenges and, and the beating that our world gives us. You know what it means to lose. So I want you to listen carefully to Jesus' words in John chapter 16, verses 21 and 22, when he said this, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she gives birth to the child, she no, no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. What we experience right now, we now have sorrow. But he says, I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. My, my wife was not a fan of birth pains. She really did not like it, especially towards the end, and it just seemed like it would never, ever, ever end. She, she experienced hopelessness and despair <laughs> at a period of time, sometime around midnight, <laughs> um, maybe, maybe for like a long period of time from about 8 p.m. to midnight. And she was like, when will this end? And sometimes you and I face that feeling, when will this end? But Jesus says that there is going to be an end, that there is going to be that birth. And the birth that we're going to experience is the birth of the second coming of Jesus. And the joy that we're going to have is going to be at least as joyful as holding that baby when you've had a newborn. The joy of having Jesus is going to be incredible. The Bible says that God is still holding back just a little longer. And why does he hold back? Why does he allow the birth pangs to wait a little longer? Is it because he has his hand over his head? No, no, no. He is holding back because there are people, probably some here right now tonight, people that have not yet said, I want you, Jesus. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to be ready when you come. So let me ask you, what time is it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's obvious we're living on borrowed time. Everything Jesus said would happen is happening. I'm thankful that it's all not, not all bad news, though. I'm thankful that you promise that the end is coming. Jesus is coming. And you're going to turn back all of the pain and all the suffering that we've experienced and that we've caused. Tonight, we want to be ready for Jesus' return. We're saying we believe and we trust you with our future. So, Lord Jesus, please come quickly.
Amen.